A lot of times I found myself asking, why am I doing a podcast? I mean, it's really not like me, but I guess when I started down this road, it led me here. Maybe there's some ego involved, some self-fulfilling need to be out there. Being an educator and a coach, I guess I'm already out there, but I'm finding there is a much more important reason why I do this, and I guess it gives me some power that I didn't have when Zach was sick. It gives me a way to feel less helpless. It gives me a chance to beat the crap out of OUD. It also gives me a chance to learn. I've learned so much about OUD and how it affects everyone, even though many don't realize how they are affected. And of course, the ultimate reason I do this is because of the prime directive. The prime directive in life is to help someone, and by doing that, we heal the world. Hey, hello there. It's good to be here. Actually, it's good to be anywhere. This is H. Lee, a.k.a. Harris Insler. And you are listening to TGMBH. These ghosts must be heard. A podcast that shares stories and interviews with people who have suffered a loss due to OUD and to others who might be impacted by OUD, opioid use disease. We want to spread awareness of the widespread devastating effects on individuals and society. Today, it's my pleasure to have Patty Vargas on the show. Is this a show? I don't even know what it is. Just a little bit about Patty, and I want her to really talk about herself, but she is an advocate, I'll just say broadly, in trying to help get rid of this menace, this epidemic, this pandemic, because it's happening all over the world. And we need more people like Patty in the fight. Patty, you could say hello. Hi, I'm here. Uh, that's good. <laughs> like I said, it's good to be anywhere, it's right? It's good to be anywhere. <laughs> so uh, my name is Patty Vargas. I am married to a fabulous man named Tony Devine. So I guess I'm Patty Vargas Devine. Depends on what circle I'm running in as to what name I answer to, I guess. I live in California, have been here most of my life. I have three kids. Tony is not their dad. The oldest is married and uh, lives not far from us and has, we call them the littles, three little granddaughters, our granddaughters. <laughs> That's a nice name. Yeah. Our middle son, Joel, uh, we lost in 2017 to opioid use disorder. And then we have a daughter who lives here in the Bay Area as well. Could you describe Joel, traits that stand out? Yeah, you know, Joel was from the earliest days, he was just really smart, really quick, had kind of a wicked sense of humor, even as a little guy. I remember when he was in fourth grade, his teacher said, Stephen is really, really bright and so smart and so capable, but Joel is incandescent. 
And that description just really stuck with me because he was, he was always a little bit ahead of things. In a, a lot of ways, that was part of his problems too. Uh, he was bored very easily. We found out later, much later in life, you know, that, that he had ADHD. And if it didn't seem relevant to him, he was not the least bit interested in participating. <laughs> but if he did, he was there. He was 100%. I just want to say that it sounds like a carbon copy of my son. Yeah. Whatever you just said, I could apply to him. You know, after we really got into understanding recovery, we began to realize how many people actually had a story very similar to Joel's. We believe that Joel began self-medicating to resolve some of these issues that were going on in his life. I've listened to and read many stories. And like Patty said, maybe people like Joel and my son, Zach, have something going on in their brains, like ADD, that might be a warning sign for the propensity to seek out substances. They probably do this to cut out the chatter in their brains. And like Joel, Zach tolerated high school unless he found something he really enjoyed. Maybe that's the way his brain was calm for a while until his mind needed new stimuli to investigate. Like I've said hundreds of times before, a whole boatload of billions are needed for brain research. He was sarcastic. He could be your absolute best friend and your worst enemy, but he was incredibly gullible. He always wanted to stand up for the underdog, sometimes led him to maybe associating with folks and trusting folks that he shouldn't have. I told you before that he was a hip hop artist. You know, it got to where with, when he really began developing this craft, you know, that his friends or, or his family, you know, we would say, okay, rhyme on this. And we would just throw out some bizarre thing. And he would just at the drop of a hat, drop a, a rhyme on it. Right. And it was very intellectual. And some of the things he would say, I would hear them, you know, in, in a recording. And I would think, I didn't even know he knew about stuff like that. You know, <laughs> just recently, a friend of mine, I sent him one of Joel's songs and, and he's a musician as well. And he laid down a track on top of it. And that was just so incredibly special to me, you know, that one of my best friends is laying down a track on one of Joel's songs, but he bought Joel's first CD listened to it in the car on his way down the coast, driving somewhere. And he said, you know, it was like a stream of consciousness. He just went from thing to thing to thing to thing. And I thought that is very descriptive of the way he wrote, the way he rhymed. Breathe in, breathe out. In with the good and let the rest seep out. Ain't no need to freak out. If you keep it real, you need to feel like you want to even keel. It takes a level of balance to achieve your chi. Or maybe you don't appreciate being free. Or maybe you don't know what it's like to be locked down. The world locked down to a certain Held back, but not for long. Put the past behind you and move along. Rise above and carry on. Sing the song of your soul where you belong. Right here and right now. Thank God, cause you're blessed with a much needed timeout. Work week, got your clutch and clocks. Close your eyes now. Visualize signing on Sunday with a mid-strength. Funny that you should mention he's a musician. Guess what? My Zach had to pick the drums, no less. <laughs> I have about a hundred CDs from his bands still. They didn't make it, let's just say. They all yeah. grew up and went to college. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's funny. He's a musician, sarcastic. Maybe there's something to what you said before about yeah. these traits. What were his favorite activities growing up? 
When he was little, he loved to make up stories. He would play with his GI Joes or his Legos or whatever, and they always had stories going on. One of the stories that we loved is he's, I don't know, four, he's sitting on his floor playing with GI Joes, you know, and I called him to come to eat. He said, we'll be right back after these messages. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> he was putting a show on or a movie or a TV show. He loved stories. He loved little tiny things. Uh, I remember one time he left a Lego man, like uh, we have a million of them, but <laughs> this Lego man, he left on the school bus when he was five and I had to chase that school bus down until I could finally stop it so he could get that little Lego man back. So he was super worried about it. <laughs> crazy. So he loved mechanical things like that. He of course started, you know, playing basketball and little league and things like that. You know, he was really good at basketball and he and my older boy joined a park and recreation league in our city. And he played for several years there. Initially he was kind of short, but fast. And then hit a growth spurt, you know, eventually it was almost six foot three. You know? Oh, that's some growth spurt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Skinny wow. as a rail, never gained any weight, but just kept growing up. Wow. Sounds like a great kid. Yeah. He was very competitive. After my divorce, we moved to another community and he wasn't, neither of my boys were really able to plug in the way they had in our previous home. So he started looking for other things, you know, and all of that was kind of tied into some of his challenges as well, but he started skating he was really, really good on rollerblades and a skateboard. I mean, he there wasn't anything he couldn't do. We had video of him doing tricks, you know, and his friends would record him and then bring it home and I would see it and it would be like, I can't believe you were doing that. No helmet, no elbow pads, no knee pads. You know, he was just so crazy at taking risks. So he was good at all that. Could not surf or ski to save his life, but he, uh, <laughs> he was good on the ground. He's from California, come on. <laughs> yeah. I would love to surf, but I wasn't, I started it when I was like 50 something and it was <laughs> too late. One story that we used to tell on him, he didn't have a whole lot of common sense. <laughs> and, uh, and yet he had certain innate qualities that we have no idea where they came from. And his grandparents had come to visit and we were all in the car and we were going to the San Diego Zoo somehow made a wrong turn in Balboa Park, didn't know where we were. Joel was five. I mean, I, I think he was, you know, between four and five, but his preschool had done a field trip. And he goes, well, you, you just turn here, turn, turn left here. And we're all going like, well, it looked like a service entrance or something, you know, we're like, no. And he goes, just turn here. So we <laughs> turn in, sure enough, it was the entrance into the zoo. And we're like, wow, wow. He was just quick. We laughed about a lot of stuff. There were, there were things that we had in common. We always had music in common. I would sometimes text him the lyrics to a song, trying to stump him. Like, what song do you think that's from? And he always knew. Or I'd text him lyrics from a, a song when I was in church, you know, and he would say, you must be in service right now. And I said, yeah, we're, we're in church. And he goes, yeah, I love that song. And Aww. there were bands that he, you know, introduced me to and vice versa. One time it was after Christmas and I was taking down all the Christmas ornaments. He was upstairs and I had my earbuds in. Apparently I was singing Sammy Hagar's I Can't Drive 55 at the top of my lungs, but <laughs> with your earbuds in, you right. don't know. He comes down the stairs and I finally caught him out of the corner of my, and he's standing on the stairs, just doubled over like sick with laughter. <laughs> and I, I can still see him standing there like that. Just, That's you know, great. he thought that was hilarious. 
in your story that you gave me on voices from the opioidcrisis.com, he started off pretty early using some sort of substance. We think a lot of this is from kind of piecing things together, you know, that remembering something he said or something I found in his writings. So we think he started experimenting with weed probably. He was 14, something like that. Not long after that was when his dad and I divorced and, and I moved and we started realizing he was smoking a lot of weed, smoking cigarettes, cutting school things like that. You know, he never drank. Alcohol was never really a thing for him. So it wasn't like he was out getting drunk with his friends. It was just, you know, he was out getting high, getting in trouble. And, what year uh, was this about? 95, yeah, 95, 96. Yeah. I had interviewed another person, which he said to me, which struck me as I haven't heard this before, is that the gateway drug is alcohol. Mm-hmm. especially in, in this country, and it's so-called accepted by society, but it is a substance that messes with your brain. Yeah. And as we know, if it messes with your brain when you're young, you're going to have trouble. But mm-hmm. I guess maybe the California thing, who knows yeah. you know, what kids were doing back then. So how did it affect him? He became flagrant, not trying to hide it. He was apparently selling weed to his classmates. You know, and I... Uh, He seemed to get angrier and meaner, and and I don't know that that was a side effect of of anything he was doing as much as it was his dissatisfaction with life. His his dad was pretty absent from his life, and I think that was a problem for him. Knowing what I know now, I wish that we had taken a much different approach. We didn't know other than ground him, take his privileges away punish him, all that kind of stuff. You know, we didn't know anything about substance use disorder. I would give anything to have those years back and be able to apply a more craft-oriented, motivational, interviewing, more humane approach. But our thing was just to punish him. The more we punished him, the madder he got and the more he rebelled. And it just was not, it, it was just kind of downhill from there. And we had sent him to live with his dad at one point that didn't work out well. And my husband ended up going and getting him and bringing him back home. Then he started getting into some of the party stuff like ecstasy and stuff that was really, really scaring us. So at that point, you would probably say to yourself, he's probably off the rails now because he's getting deeper and deeper. Oh yeah. It was terrifying. I was probably more angry than scared until it kept going on. You know, I would think, God, Joel, after everything we've been through, you know, why would you be going down this path? Why would you be doing this? Didn't know what to do. I didn't know anybody like this. I didn't know anybody that was going through this and didn't really want to ask anybody because, you know, I, it was stigma. I I don't know that I would say I was ashamed of him, but there was the stigma around saying, our family is going through this, really not knowing anywhere to turn. I didn't know how to get him into recovery. I didn't know what to do. You know, my, my idea was um, maybe we'll send him to military school or something like that. And then he, he decided he was going to join the Marine Corps because his brother had joined the Marine Corps. And we're like, yay, that's awesome. You know, my son, my older boy said, he'll never make it through boot camp. He's too adversarial. I don't know, but he failed the drug test so he couldn't get in. 
but you know, so we thought, well, send them to military school or send them to these weird outbound things, send them to teen challenge. I don't know. But in the meantime, he's getting older, he's becoming an adult and we have less and less options. Something like that happened to us where he said, I have to go to the hospital. I don't feel good, this and that. And okay, we rushed him to the hospital. He was 18 at the time and 19. So they work him up, whatever. And I talked to the nurse and I said, so what's the matter? I said, well, I can't tell you. So what do you mean you can't tell me? He's 18. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I had no idea. I didn't think of going to drugs. I thought maybe he's gay. Not that there's anything wrong with it, but okay, <laughs> I can accept that. Mm-hmm. But that law, I was, I know what it's meant for, but it probably would have helped if we knew when he was that young. He was, I think he was 19. Yeah, I think that's a, a ridiculous law because, you know, it's like when we did finally get him into some kind of treatment, they wouldn't tell us anything, but boy, they would sure pick up the phone when they needed a check. Exactly. And, you know, and that was always the case with, with other family members that went into treatment too. It was like, nope, can't tell you anything, but by the way, you owe us, you know. So how did things get worse? Was this like the really worst? That oh, you- no. Oh, no. I mean, it's like, you know, you, you think it is and it's not. But yeah, he was doing all of the, the party drugs, you know, doing the raves, going down to Mexico and buying drugs, which terrified right. us, you know, because what in the world was he getting? And I, I would imagine he was selling. Uh, I think he was running with a group of folks that were. Some of the drugs that he was taking, he was beginning to exhibit really paranoid behavior and showed up at his brother's apartment, you know, one night, middle of the night, convinced he was being chased by people and so forth. We staged a little mini intervention with them, just with our family members, had no idea what in the world that meant, but just, you know, please stop. We love you. And and he said, yes, I will. And of course we're thinking, okay, yay, you know, family's all back together. And it wasn't, and, and he would disappear for months on end. I mean, I remember times of not having talked to him for months and have no way of reaching him, you know, and not, not answer a phone call not respond to a text, nothing like that. That would be the worst because you don't know if you're ever going to get a phone call yeah, or get a different kind of, you're going to get the different kind of call. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, it's, it was so long because he was, he was almost 36 when he died. So we're talking years, you know, we're talking a very, you know, 20 years of, of drug use, you know, finally got to a point where he was smoking meth, smoking heroin, and things really, really went downhill from there. He would have times where he seemed to be functioning relatively well and working on his music and stuff. And then there would be times where he was very clearly super sick and and not doing well. I can't imagine going through what the Vargas family did for 20 years. Zach really was only involved for maybe a year and a half or two. Sometimes the uh, details get a little murky. I mean, compared to Patty's struggle, which is one of the extreme ones, we were like little babes going through this. I've heard stories where people's afflicted person steal, rob, be mean, But of course, at the time, people don't remember that it's the disorder making them mean. But Zach, on the other hand, he never stole anything from us. He wasn't mean to us. He came to us for help. He tried, but he was just unlucky. And the scars he left us with will never go away, but the memories he gave us far outnumber that short span of his life where he was sick. I think the first time he went to jail, he was maybe 27 
went to jail for the first time. And it was a relatively short, you know, like less than a year. Second time he went was a little bit longer. <laughs> Talk about crazy Joel stories. First time he went, he caught MRSA in jail. The yeah, He called me and he said, um, hey mom, they're moving me over to a prison, the big prison, because I have to be in solitary confinement. I have MRSA. And we're like, Oh my God. You know, so we, we drove down to see him and we, I think we were still in San Diego at the time and he was in prison in San Diego. So we drove down and, and we had to go through all these checkpoints to get to this visitor section for people in solitary confinement. And so we're standing there and, and we're, you know, there's this huge space between us, you know, separated by glass. And he comes walking out and uh, picks up the phone. I pick up the phone and he goes, God, and mom, he goes, you look so scared. And I'm like, that's his sarcasm. Yeah. He's like, well, he was laughing. He thought it was funny. And he said, well, it's not all bad. He goes, I'm safe because I'm in solitary. And and he goes, and I'm reading. He goes, I'm reading almost a book a day. He goes, what happened to me? How come I haven't read a book? When he got out that time, he went into a halfway home and did pretty well for, I don't know, a year or something, and then moved from there into his own place and pretty soon was back to his shenanigans. The third time that he went to jail was really the clincher, though, because he we had already moved up to Northern California, and so we would drive down to San Diego probably every three months to go see him. He had gotten a, I think it was a five-year sentence which they then shortened to three and a half because it was nonviolent. He got released as part of AB 109, where they were releasing because of prison overcrowding. But while he was there, he said, this is ridiculous. This has got to stop. I'm sick of myself. I'm too old for this. You know, look at me, I'm getting gray hair. And he started taking all kinds of classes while he was there. But as, as part of AB 109, When he was released in San Diego, he had to go into a special program. It was the best thing that ever happened to him. It was by no means country club type treatment. It was bare bones, ugly, hot, dirty. For the first time, he got truly what you call medically assisted treatment. He was being treated psychologically and physically, job training, life skills training, was during that time, which was, it was the first time we'd ever discovered that he had a heart condition. We don't know if he had developed that because of his drug use or if it was something that had been latent and was exacerbated by it or what, but he came out of there a, a changed person. He was going to be different. He, he got a good job. He started doing uh, construction work. He got licensed as a roofer. I was just really proud of himself. He was really he was contributing, doing well. I think it's very ironic that he goes to jail. He gets the best of care this last time. Why, where is it over this whole country? Not even, not talking about the prisons, but in general. Yeah. When I read it, you know, in your story, I was like, how is this happening? That program was not available to anybody except those coming out of the prison system. While I was, you know, so grateful that it existed, it also made me so angry. Like, here's a model. This is a model to follow. We had sent him to rehab at one of the country club, you know, gold-plated places that didn't provide that level of support at all. 
it is something that is grossly needed, you know, across the country. But I mean, even if it could just be freaking consistent in the state, it would be so helpful. There's a woman in, in one of my communities that shared that she knew she needed to get into treatment. She knew she needed to get sober. She was a heroin user and her and her boyfriend were in a car driving up and down the state of California, the coast of California, desperately looking for a place to go. No beds available, no beds available, no beds available. You know, they, they didn't have any money. So they committed a crime so they could go to jail to get sober. That is ridiculous. That is ridiculous. Are you aware of the federal drug status in terms of different kinds of penalties for different kinds of drugs? Mm -hmm. And heroin is, is a class one, mm -hmm. which is the worst, and maybe marijuana is class two. But all they had to do was make heroin class two, and that would unleash tons of research because now universities, medical doctors that do research, now they can use the heroin to find out maybe new ways of treating, but they still haven't changed that yet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And a little thing like that can unleash hundreds of millions of dollars. And maybe we can make some headway yeah. in this, this epidemic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And these things you're telling me is, it's, other people, they said, oh, you had to be high to get arrested that way, and then you'll get care which let's go to the root cause, mm -hmm. not the symptom. You know, fortunately, there are people who are listening now, you know, yes. legislators that are listening. And I think a great deal of it has to do with many of them have now had lived experience. You know, this isn't somebody else's kid. This is your kid. When I write, when I blog and stuff, one of my hashtags is my child, your child. Yes. It happened to me. It can happen to yours. Don't, don't be so smug that this hasn't touched your family because somebody, it might've even been you, Harris, that said, you know, shake any family tree in an attic, they'll fall out. Mm -hmm. It's, it's everywhere. It's prevalent. We have a president with lived experience. Um, yes. We have other legislators with lived experience. We're starting to get some attention to this and some of the work that's, that's done, you know, I'm just really grateful for that, but, you know, we're really targeting our legislators now about this, you know, this 10% carve out in the federal budget for 2022, that's going to be dedicated to substance use disorder and investigating it, investing in it, supporting treatment for it, and not just throwing money at, at more criminalization and, you know, let's just build bigger jails, you know, to house, house them all. And well, you, you know why they built the jails? Because who was getting thrown into jail? Mm -hmm. Minorities, mm -hmm. people that were poor. A good system if you were a senator who uh, got some money from the incarceration industry. Mm -hmm. But that started way back in the 90s. So you did say something about stigma. Mm -hmm. Did it affect you and how did it affect you? I think you mentioned something that it sounds like it was stigma because I know it was affecting me too. Well, it's very isolating when you think you're the only person because nobody's talking about it. So you think you're the only one with this, this experience. And that's, that's what stigma does is it keeps us quiet. It keeps things in the shadows. You have to remove that stigma. We wouldn't treat people with cancer or diabetes or Parkinson's disease this way. You have to be willing to step out and ask for help and share your story. But like I said, I didn't know where to turn. And the isolation itself makes you feel even more stigmatized. You know, you, you don't know who to ask or what to do. Everyone and their brother has advice. 
they have no experience and they have no knowledge, but they've all got advice. <laughs> I had finally connected with a woman um, actually through my church that had had some challenges with one of her kids with, with substance use. And he had since recovered kind of grew out of it type of thing, didn't go through recovery. She shared with me that people would tell her, well, I would just kick him out. Well, I, if I were you, I would just kick him out. If he were my son, I would just kick him out. Yeah. And she said, yeah, well, if, if, he, if he were your son, I'd kick him out too. <laughs> because it's not, you know, it's not that simple. You know, you kick them out and then you lay awake all night wondering right. where they are. Are right. they okay? Are they eating? Are they cold? Are they dead? So it's still your kid. People telling you what to do is one of the least helpful things that there is. We felt it very strongly. We're in a middle-class upper, I don't know what how do you call it. It's a nice neighborhood, good schools in the suburbs. You know, I didn't know, like you, I had no clue. I didn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. When I found out, I think only my brothers knew. Not many, even my, even my cousins, I didn't say anything because we were too busy going through the rehabs, Suboxone and all that stuff. I don't know why we stopped Suboxone, but if I knew now what I knew, didn't know then, I would keep him on for the rest of his life. If I didn't even know about it. When we sent him to the expensive country club place, they never even mentioned it. Of course it wasn't not. even offered. It was cold turkey, you know. He went in there. They, they, uh, they told me later that he brought more meth into that place than anybody had ever brought in. They, they made a good living over there. He, huh? Well, no, I mean he was trying to take care of himself. You know, oh. he was. He felt like he was going against his will and stuff. So he just packed it in everywhere he possibly could. That was Joel in a nutshell. Never thinking, oh, I guess they'll check everything before they let me in. <laughs> But never once did they suggest Suboxone or, or even methadone. Right. And his heroin use was as strong as his meth use at that point. How did you find out he died, by the way? So he was living in San Diego. He and his fiance had broken up. They had both gotten arrested, kind of went their separate tracks. And so he was living with a guy for a while who finally threw him out. And so he was homeless. He was, he was living in the park. My daughter had gone down to be with him. And so she was living with the guy that had kicked him out. And apparently the guy went out to go to work in the morning was what happened. And Joel was asleep in the back of his truck. And so he said, just go on in the house. So he went in, he was freezing. It was November. Our daughter put him to bed, covered him up with blankets, got him warm and stuff. And then she went back to bed. She heard him coughing and she went to check on him and he said he was okay. And then she went back to bed and then she heard him coughing again and her dog started barking and, and she went in and he was gone. Sorry. So she called us. That, that happened in the morning on Monday, but she didn't call us till that night. She just couldn't, she couldn't bring herself to do it. You never got to speak to him right before he died, I assume? Thanksgiving night. So he died on Monday after Thanksgiving. Okay. So Thanksgiving, we texted back. He wasn't, he didn't like to talk on the phone. So he texted and I have tons of text messages saved from, you know, probably the last couple of years of his life. So anyway, he texted me and, you know, I told him I was really sad, sad that he wasn't with us, 
sad that he had spent Thanksgiving in a shelter and I wished we were together. If you could say anything to Joel right now, what would it be? Come home with us and we'll, we'll find a place. We'll figure out something for you to do, somewhere for you to go. I did say that the last time we physically were face to face. I did say that, but I would say it again. When Joel died, did you tell anybody? Yeah. I mean, by then we were, um, we were out. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I called my son and he came over 1030 at night or something. We just started throwing stuff in the car. And I called my brother who lives in San Diego and said, Hey, this has happened. We're on our way home. And he was like devastated and called my sister, called our pastor. And we just got in the car and we drove, but you know, like I said, it was the middle of the night. We were almost ready for bed. And so we, we drove down and I remember we stopped partway through because my husband said, he goes, I just can't, I can't see anymore. I need to rest. So we stopped. I didn't sleep. I was just like, from the minute I heard, I was just like, I was wired. Do you think the stigma that was there, if it wasn't there, might have changed anything? No. um, When we finally realized how bad it was, it was that I didn't know where to go. I didn't know how to find, I didn't even know what treatment was supposed to look like. There were so many barriers. Like there was, somebody told us about this one place in San Diego. It was a faith-based program and they'd had some great success, but you had to show up on Sunday morning. You had to sit through the church service. And then at the end of the church service, you could be taken into the program. Well, at the time I'm talking to them about this, it's like Wednesday. And I'm thinking, how do I hang on to him until Sunday and make sure that he goes? I mean, this is ridiculous. Why can't I bring him right now? He's right here right now. Unfortunately, the people that pick up the phone when you're looking for help are the ones that want you to write a hefty check. That's a problem right there. Even though afterwards I found out about other programs you know, you're, you're online and you're searching and you're looking and those aren't the ones that pop up to the top. You know, <laughs> those aren't the ones you can find. The ones you can find are the ones that have the money to have search engine optimization and stuff and they just pop up. And, and I remember saying to somebody, I don't know what, I, I can't afford this. I don't know how I'm going to pay for this. And they said, well, I really don't think at a time like this, you should be worried about money. <sighs> you write the check, you know? No, they shame you into like, Oh, you're not going to do this to save your son. I mean, you know what? And that brings up, you know, about Shatterproof. Mm -hmm. And if we had Shatterproof back then with their new Atlas for different treatments, rating the treatments, not only that, look at our health insurance. Basically, it doesn't do that much and didn't do that much back in 2006 when my son died, nor in 2017, right? So I, I wrote a blog about this called 28 Days. Like there's a reason why treatment programs are 28 days in length. It's because that's what insurance will pay for. It's the regulations. Nobody's well in 28 days. When we sent Joel away, I fully expected I was going to get my son fixed at the end of that program. You know, when he was coming to the end of it, the last weekend that he was there and realizing they had nothing for him unless we coughed up another 28 days worth of payment. And realizing he was not at all okay. He was still angry and he was still wanting to use. It was terrifying. It was like, what was this, what was this all for? I don't even know what the regulations are now, but I hear from a lot of people, even in this day and age, 
You know, the health insurance for addiction, alcoholism and heroin, which is, as someone once told me, is the cancer of all addictions. And I believe that because the quote unquote cure rate is maybe 10%. Maybe it's gone up a little since that figure came out. But this whole health system and, and the insurance companies have to be better regulated. This is what we're paying for. We're paying for, for these health services and we're not getting them. And not only that, they're not that good. Yeah. And the recovery rate is, is kind of a misnomer because it's not how long does it take to get a drug out of your system? No. It's how long does it take to rewire your brain? Exactly. You know, and the biggest fear around recovery is, are you going to live long enough for that to happen? Exactly. In an emergency room visit with another loved one, a doctor said, you know, there's a lot of old heroin addicts walking around. There's not a lot of old meth addicts. Hmm. Meth will kill you quicker than heroin will. The, the whole thing is so brain altering that until we look at recovery as, as a holistic need, until we look at what was the underlying cause that led you to, to want to use or feel you needed to use, and then realize how long has your brain been rewiring itself this way? And how long is it going to take to bring you back? It's more than just getting the poison out of your system. It's rehabilitating your mind and getting you to like yourself again and not feel the shame and not feel the regret of what you've done to yourself and the time lost and the, all of that stuff. It's a horrible disease. And that goes hand in hand with what I said before about changing the statutes, making heroin a class two so they can get the research funded by the government, by the Health and Human Services Department. You know, let's face it, healthcare is an industry. Mm -hmm. so we have that battle to, to fight. And like you said, maybe there's an underlying psychological problem that has stayed with this child and rewired the brain so that that child is more prone to using and becoming addicted. And once they do, especially at an earlier age, that they need, like I said before, more research and it's yeah. everything is intertwined. What is the cutting edge technology doing for people who are sick? Mm -hmm. Yeah, cancer is a big one, but they got a lot of money. Yeah, This affects a lot of children. You want that brain to change and maybe they have a chance of becoming a person again. Now, obviously, before Joel got mixed up with drugs, you had no idea. You didn't even think about stigma, right? Mm -mm. Why do you think people still believe and uphold the stigma? I didn't think it would happen to my family. We were just normal people involved in our kids' life. We went to church. They didn't want for anything. We weren't wealthy, but they didn't know what it was like to go without eating or you know anything like that. And so you just assume that happens to somebody else. It doesn't happen to us. I think that's why it's still pervasive. And then when it does happen to you, the fact that you feel isolated by it, so you don't talk about it, and that just perpetuates the lie, perpetuates the stigma. I gave a talk at a church a few years back, told Joel's story, and it was the first time I had told his story in public, you know, like that, you know, doing public speaking like that. I thought, nah, I don't know how this is going to land. You know, these people look awfully nice and, you know, 
couldn't believe how many came up and said, my brother is an alcoholic or my son is, is addicted to, you know, X, Y, Z. I lost my son. I lost my dad. I lost, you know, my, my mom, whatever to this. So it's everywhere until we give people permission to talk about it. It's the disease that's in the dark. Both my experiences of being in the hospital with people with substance use disorder, the medical community doesn't always treat them very well. I remember one time being in the hospital with another loved one and they were acting like I was a hovering parent, you know, like you're too involved, you're too this, you're too that. And I finally said, I said, look, I'm here to advocate for this person because you sure as hell are not. And you need to know that this person is on heroin right now. I don't know when she used last, but you really ought to be kind of concerned about that. Are you doing something to taper her down? Are you do, are you giving her something for this? You know, so don't tell me to butt out or I'm, I'm being a hovering parent, you know, I'll hover as long as I need to, to make sure you don't freaking kill her. And yet, you know, there's on the flip side, I, I don't want to paint the whole scene that way because right. there was another time that this person overdosed. Her, the physician that saw her was so incredibly kind, treated her like a person and spoke to us and probably said all kinds of things he shouldn't have, you know, via HIPAA laws and so forth. But he treated her like a person and he expressed his concern. He made suggestions to the point, I mean, it, it, moved me to tears, you know, and I, I wrote him a personal letter later, thanking him for treating her like a human being. I'd like you to tell our listeners how you advocate. Since Joel died, obviously I advocate for the, the recovery community, but I also advocate for those who are grieving. I do not have the capacity that I used to have only realized that by hitting a wall after trying to continue at that same capacity. I work as much as I want to work. And when I need to do nothing, I do nothing. That's good. Sometimes I can't do nothing, but I'm getting there. Uh, (laughs) But again, just, you know, I, I wrote a blog called White Space and I talked about that crash and burn that I had after Joel died. I tried to keep myself super busy, uber busy, over busy, ridiculously busy. And finally just had a meltdown panic attack, looking at my calendar and realizing I didn't have any white space. And so that's the name of the blog. I like that. So I do. There's, there's days that I, I try not to start days very early because if I had a bad night sleeping, I'll get up when I get up you know, take a day here and there where I'm not responsible for anything, but whatever I want to do. You want to tell everybody your Twitter handle? Oh, what is it? It's my email is patty at right. the net. My blog post is on my website, which is the right. okay. net. And then my Twitter is like, you know, I had this awesome Twitter community that I'd had for like 12 years. Wow. And then I, I got put in Twitter jail because I, uh, yeah. I made a comment about a congressman. <laughs> Get out of here. I did. And so I, I have a second Twitter that's under the resilient journey. And I don't have as many followers there yet. Maybe you could help some of the listeners who don't have this problem now with their family. What would you say are warning signs of possible OUD that people should look out for? Pay attention. Uh, don't minimize what concerns that you have, because as parents, we want to believe the best. 
And if we can somehow convince ourselves that those seeds we found in their underwear drawer are not marijuana or everybody carries papers and clips around. When you start finding straws laying around, fruit that's been turned into a bong by a very enterprising child, question, you know, question everything and, and have the conversation out there and open. And, and I remember talking to all three of my kids at one point and saying, look, you don't know if you're the one that flips that switch and you can't flip it off. You may have a million friends that decide they're done and they're done and you're going to be the one that's not having open conversations about it. And, and like, just trust your gut. Joel would be up for days when he was using a lot of meth. He'd just be up for days, hmm. just running like the Energizer bunny and then crash and go to sleep and he's gone for days. Well, I got to say, you have been the most illuminating guest I've had. You've been at this, you know, a lot longer than I have. I thank you. And I just want to know if there's any last thoughts that you want to share with the listeners. When Joel first died, I, uh, I kept trying to figure out, like, what do I do with this? How do I serve somebody with this? What do I, you know, just feeling like uh, I had to do something to make meaning of it. And, and there is no meaning in something so awful. But I... I have now really found purpose in some of the things that I, that I participate in. Being one of the state reps for the Recovery Advocacy Project, California State, we have just developed what our platform is. What is it that we really want to focus our advocacy on, which is advocating for recovery-oriented systems of care so that within your community, there are services that support people in recovery right there in your community. So we're advocating towards that, doing a lot of letter writing through the project. We're also really going after that 10% carve out in the budget, really writing to anybody and everybody and, and sharing that across our networks. And then the, the other thing that I find hugely rewarding is I'm a parent coach with the partnership to end addiction. And so um, that is a free service to any parent who is looking to talk to somebody who's been there and done that. That's wonderful. So you you just reach out to the Partnership to End Addiction. Actually, the easiest way to get them is drugfree.org. And you, you know, say, I want a parent coach. And there's resources that they will give you. The coaching is free. It's just somebody talking to you on the phone about what you're going through. I have had more parents say to me, just to talk to somebody who's already been there, just helps. I mean, I can't fix anything. If I could, I would have fixed my own. Right. But I can sure as hell tell you that here's some things you might try and uh, here's how you live through this. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it very much. To stay tuned with These Ghosts Must Be Heard, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at These Ghosts Pod. And take a look at our website, VoicesFromTheOpioidCrisis.com, to hear more stories and share your own if you'd like. Our podcast is now streaming on Spotify, Amazon, Apple Music, and coming to more soon. So there's plenty of ways to hear these ghosts. To learn more about the Recovery Advocacy Project and the work Patty Vargas is doing, you can visit recoveryvoices.org, founded by Ryan Hampton. You can also find her blog at theresilientjourney.net. See you next time, folks. And as Zach always said, peace out.